A flaming but solitary figure, singing through the somber Ontario of the 70s and 80s of the last century, strange and brilliant songs. The songs were alien to the day and place in which they were sung. It was as though a vendor of foreign fruits were, by some trick of fate, set down to sell his wares in bazaars whose crowds were too unsophisticated to recognize their flavors. Hello and welcome to Story Girls, the mini-sode! Woo! Yay! Right, it's a castle mini-sode. It's a castle mini-sode. Yes. Uh, this is our very first mini-sode and today we are focusing on... Isabella Valency Crawford. And who is that? <laughs> so Isabella Valency Crawford was a Canadian writer in the mid-1800s and we're, we've chosen to do a mini-sode on her strictly because her middle name is Valency. It's a pretty tenuous link, but uh, we did mention her in our Blue Castle episode. Mm -hmm. The Blue Castle by Ellen Montgomery. Yes, and yep. mentioned that the possibility that Ellen Montgomery may have been inspired to name her main character Valency Sterling after Isabella Valency Crawford because she was from Lakefield. Well, she wasn't from, but she lived in Lakefield and Peterborough for many years, which is quite close to Muskoka where the Blue Castle is set. And um, it's a really unusual name. So we kind of hypothesized a little link there, mm -hmm. which led us to do a little bit more research on this fascinating named woman, fascinatingly named woman. Mm. Us is a bit of a stretch, though, <laughs> because you have all done all the research, and my role is strictly to listen to That's that true. research as you tell me today. It's very true. And ask all the questions. So my first question for you, even though mm. you just said you're going to be asking questions, what did you think of that that? preliminary reading there i it's very descriptive hmm. so i feel like i would have to go through it and like remove all those descriptors for like what are we talking about here yeah i should also say that this is like a biography that's like the very first paragraph of a biography of her so that wasn't even by her no oh my no, god no 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 who was this, that by that was by um i'll tell you who it's by because it's okay. very upsetting Catherine hale and then in brackets Mrs. John Garvin. Wow. Imagine doing that on mm, your byline. That's a really beautiful, uh, mm -hmm. that's really beautiful though. Makers of Canadian literature. Yeah. It's a yeah. series, um, printed by the Ryerson press in Toronto mm -hmm. a long time ago. I'm trying yeah. to find the I know. Actual. Interestingly enough, when we did the Blue Castle episode, we had talked about doing a mini-sode for this. Mm -hmm. And then one day while we were out thrifting in um a very small town and we were just it was a oh what are they called like a stalls um oh were you perhaps referring to um I was referring. a vendor of foreign fruits in a <laughs> bazaar whose crowd is too unsophisticated to recognize their flavors Oh, <laughs> insulting. Oh, so insulting. So insulting. Uh, no, I guess like a vintage market where there's many different vendors. Mm -hmm. And while mm -hmm. I go to these all the time, the name quite escapes me. Anyways, <laughs> but there was one uh, vendor which had like a whole bunch of books and you mm -hmm. always look through. There's not very many vendors with books or no. whatever. Mm -hmm. And you found this tiny blue book. Tiny blue book. That happened to be a biography of Isabel. Isabella? Isabella. Isabella Valency Crawford, which... Mm -hmm. I was so amazed. <laughs> it's and it seemed amazing. like kismet. 
It did. So yeah. So the the beginning part, um, I should also say it's inscribed um, from 1947. Someone. Mm. It looks like someone gave this to someone else. I know there's more than one there's name. There's more going than on one here. name. I don't. It's kind of unclear. But yeah, it's it's quite an old book. I can't actually find a copyright date in it. But um, so yeah, it's the first part is biographical, which is what I was reading from, and then there's anthology, which has a lot of her poetry. Um, and then there's appreciation Ooh. at the end. So if you didn't think the first part was appreciative en- of enough, then there's, um, oh, there's also a photo of her, which we will post oh. um, so everyone can see what she looks like. But I'm going to get into some uh, biography of Ooh, her okay. in my own words, not quite as flowery as uh, Catherine Hale, Mrs. John Garvin. <clears throat> Mrs. John Because she had, um, I guess... I was going to say she had a really interesting life. She, I don't know how interesting it actually was, but it was very interesting to us now in terms of looking back at the history of um, the writing and publishing industry in Canada and the types of stories and poems that were written, published, appreciated. There's there's a lot to dig into here. So it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting, but this is just going to be a mini-sode. It's not going to be... Don't worry, you're not going to listen to this woman who you probably will never read <laughs> because her her work is actually really hard to find. Um, but it's still, it's really, it's fascinating. So Isabella Valency Crawford was born in Dublin in 1850, probably on Christmas Day is what I read. So oh. prob- it's probable. Okay. It might not be definite, but let's just say she was born on Christmas Day. Um, her father was a doctor. And so he and his wife, whose name was Sidney Scott Crawford, which is really good name that is a good name yeah sydney scott Crawford. so would scott have been her maiden name yes i believe so oh was that often that people did that back then kept their like maiden names as part of their name names i have no idea hmm. uh, it's not hyphenated it's just yeah yeah sydney scott that's a good name that's a damn good name yeah and uh incidentally one of the characters in her novel winona or the foster sisters which i have read is named Sydney, oh. and she's like the best. She's like such a smart. She's the best. She's a really like because a lot of the women characters are very um, brainless, but oh. Sydney is not. Oh. So it makes me wonder if her mom was maybe like a bit of a fiery kind of that she named her after her oh. mom. Anyway, all right. A lot of speculation about naming characters going on, but so they had twelve children. She had eleven siblings. Eleven siblings, but not for long oh, no. sadly because before leaving Ireland in 1857 so she would have been seven years old at the time okay seven of the children died in an epidemic oh so they moved with their remaining five children mm-hmm. to the new world mm-hmm. um which actually wasn't new it was just new to Europeans yeah um <laughs> yeah it's actually it's been around for a while they settled in the village of Paisley, Ontario, in the Bruce Peninsula, um, okay. which was then known as Canada West. Wow. Yeah. So anyone unfamiliar with Canada, it is not anywhere near the West Coast. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, but yeah, he set up practice as a doctor. However, this is going to give you... Well, I'm just going to jump ahead for a minute because they left Paisley in 1861 and moved to Lakefield, Ontario. Okay. And then a few years later moved to Peterborough, which is really close to Lakefield. It is. Yeah. Um, But Dr. Crawford overall 
not super successful in any place um, because he racked up debts. He was an alcoholic. There were rumors of incompetence. And here's a great quote. Lack of interest in his vocation. Oh. You really don't want that in a doctor. You really, really don't. But it gets worse. Oh, no. And now I'm jumping back in time to Paisley. The reason why they left Paisley in 1861 was under suspicion that he had mishandled township funds. He was the township treasurer. And there was a subsequent suicide of one of his bondsmen. What was a bondsman? I feel like... I don't know. <laughs> you feel like you don't know. <laughs> I feel like I don't know, but it would have something to do with having money, money. entrusted to you, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, God. So he did, was doing some shady stuff. Well, because he wasn't good as a doctor, he was embezzling funds and yeah. maybe suckered some poor other fool into it whose conscience was stricken and thus... I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. So kind of a bummer for the fam. Yeah. Well, if she got her smarts from somewhere, it was definitely her mother then. Yeah, it's probably from Sidney Scott. Sidney Scott, um, who was not smart enough to marry a better man. No. But. No. Alas. Alas. Um, so anyway, I'm going to then jump back to Lakefield because they lived in Lakefield for many years and they were... Um, they became friends in Lakefield with Catherine Partrail and Susanna Moody. So Canadian listeners may recognize Susanna Moody is probably the more famous. She wrote Roughing It in the Bush, which is often studied. I studied it in school. I don't know. Did you? Oh, no. No? No. Ever heard of it? You no. look confused. Oh. No. It just, it's, it, no. Okay. And it's also um, Margaret Atwood did a thing. What kind of thing? Um, she did like a, the journals of Susanna Moody, some kind of book i think she just made up stuff there were drawings oh. i don't remember it was i looked through it once many hmm. years ago okay but as you know not not a fan not a fan but um anyway she's probably the more well-known um because when i was telling rob our sound person and sub- also incidentally my husband um <laughs> incidentally incidental <laughs> i was like yeah we were friends with Susanna moody in in lakefield and he was like oh was that after she roughed it in the bush. <laughs> I was like, yes, she would have been um, older, an older lady by then. And Catherine Partrail was her sister. And she was also an established writer and wrote a lot of children's books and a lot of, she wrote like a handbook on emigrating to Canada for Europeans, for oh. European women. Oh. Um, just be like, this is what you should expect here. Right. Um, yeah. It's not all beautiful loon sounds. It's uh, it's hard. It is hard. It's hard. Yeah. Um, so they were both literary, and Isabella Valency Crawford was, as a young girl, also inclined to write poetry. Mm. And so she started writing poetry, and then once her father, you know, once she got old enough to realize her father was really not bringing in the money for the family, she mm-hmm. and her younger sister, whose name was Emma Naomi, oh, um, both started. I like both of those names, but it's weird together. It is weird together. Yeah. Um, They both started writing and getting things published in serial magazines and newspapers. Wow. And so they were supplementing the family income. Hmm. Um, Yeah. I also have here a 
physical description of Isabella Valency Crawford by Florence Atwood, who was Catherine Partrail's granddaughter. She says, the Crawfords lived in a little house where mother remembers going to tea with Aunt Kate and grandmother, or sorry, remembers going with Aunt Kate and grandmother to take tea with them. Isabella was the oldest child, at that time about 17 years old. Very pretty, medium complexion, very pretty hair, which she did in the same style as Empress Eugenie of France, rolled back from the face. Rolled. Rolled. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't sound great. Well. Rolled back from the face. But if the Empress Eugenie of France was doing it. Eugenie. Is that how you say that? Eugenie? I'm not sure. Is it like the same as one of the princesses? Yeah. Yeah. Eugenie. I, I just don't like it. Well, it's Eugenie? No, it, it's no Sydney Scott. No. But. <laughs> Way too much emphasis on names. <laughs> well, interestingly, oh. um, I also have a quote from somebody who was saying, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was a Canadian sculptor from Peterborough who recalled uh, the scornful attitude of the people of the town who thought that a somewhat detached manner on the part of the poet was a mere affectation. So this is when she was an adult living in Peterborough and people didn't care for her apparently. Miss oh. um, Wallace also remembers the fact that children would follow her to call out the, to them, fantastic and unfamiliar name Valency. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So children would... Yell it at her. She walks down the street. Yo, bouncing. <laughs> yeah, they nice said, name. They definitely said yo. <laughs> yo. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, getting back to her writing career. Okay. Her earliest known publication was a short story in a publication called The Hearthstone in 1872, and then she also had a novel which was called Wrecked! Exclamation <laughs> point. Or. The Rose Claris of Mystery. Not mystery, mystery, like the word mist and the word tree put together. Um, which Wait, be- those are, that's an alternative title, title. to wrecked? To wrecked, exclamation point. <laughs> wow. Yes, it was a gothic romance set in England, France, and Italy. Oh. And it was run serially in Frank Leslie's Illustrated magazine. So Frank Leslie was an American um, publishing magnate. He had lots of serialized um, newspapers and magazines, a lot of them illustrated. And there's a couple of illustrations in one of the books that I have, which we will also post because I really think illustrated story papers should make a comeback. Some of these illustrations are great. Um, So the story papers that she was mostly published in, along with a lot of other um, now forgotten writers were, they really rose to population or rose to popularity in the 1830s and 1840s due to a whole bunch of different factors. There was like increased literacy. There was an increased population. There was also a mass market that was um, created by the availability of distribution through the railway. Hmm. And so these kind of sprang up in response to those things. And it was really fascinating that she was, then she entered a contest for a, national Canadian novel. Oh. So as I said, Wrecked or the Rose Claris of Mystery was set in Europe. Okay. Um, but there was a real push on at the time to create a national identity. Okay. So some of these papers were um, trying to promote that. So 
just listen to this ad okay <laughs> that went into this uh publication called the hearthstone it said um wanted to the literary men and women of canada we want to become acquainted with you exclamation point we want to unearth the hidden talent now buried in our cities and hamlets inland farms and seaside dwellings primeval forests and storm-tossed barks we crave narratives, novels, sketches penned by vigorous Canadian hands, welling out from fresh and fertile Canadian brains, thrilling with the adventures by sea and land of Canadian heroes, redolent with the perfume of Canadian fields and forests, soft as our sunshine, noble as our landscapes, grand as our inland seas and foam-girt shores. And it goes on. But this, wow. <laughs> this is what they were advertising for. So she entered this contest. She wrote this novel called Winona or the Foster Sisters, mm -hmm. which is actually the only one of her works that I have read in full. Okay. Um, and she won. Oh. So the prize was $500 plus publication. Mm -hmm. um, the story was published in 12 installments, but the firm never paid. Oh. Yes. Oh, dear. That's yeah, unfortunate. so unfortunate. And so at the age of 22, mm -hmm. she took them to court. Oh, good for her. Yeah, good for her. Um, and she won. Oh, good. And she won not only the $500, but an extra $105 in interest. Ooh. So they had to pay her $605, but they didn't because as soon as that was over, they declared bankruptcy. Oh, God. So she never got her money, which was a real shame because they really could have used the money. Um, and, oh yeah, I should also say this is more sadness, but while living in Canada, two or three more children died. Oh. Yeah. So in 1875, Dr. Crawford died of a heart attack. Okay. Which then left their mother, mm -hmm. Isabella Valency, Emma Naomi, and one brother, Stephen, who had gone to Algoma Territory, which okay. is what we now know as uh, Sault Ste. Marie area, mm -hmm. um, to try to make a living. So, And that was it? That was it. Wow. After having that many children. Times are tough. And six months after, oh, no. Emma and Naomi died of tuberculosis. Oh. Yeah. So Isabella and her mother moved to Toronto in 1876 and mm -hmm. lived in a series of boarding houses mm. um, and survived on her earnings. Oh. From writing. Wow. Mm -hmm. So did she never marry? She never married. Well, it's, it's fine. It's just... Well, we'll get to oh, her no, it's sad not for end. Fine. It's not for fine. <laughs> um, she was pr very prolific in this period. She mm. published a lot of serialized stories and novels, and she was really uh, participating in the Victorian sensation novel oh. um, sort of popularity of that at the time. And it's <laughs> Winona, or the Foster Sisters, is... Um, as the introduction to the novel says, it should be said at once that Winona is not a lost masterpiece. <laughs> Ouch. Although lost, it certainly has been for well over a century. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but it's uh, not true. It's a okay. uh, very flowery, embellished language. Uh-huh. It's got tons of the tropes of the sensation novel. So, um, So some of these were like, if anyone's ever read Wilkie Collins or Mary Elizabeth Braddon, um, 
it's like very melodramatic, lots of like scandalous topics. There's always like blackmail and bigamy and like murder, villainy, poisonings, madness. Like this, uh, these were the tropes of the Victorian sensation novel. Right. Um, I've often thought that living as a Victorian would have been pretty rough because they were so buttoned up. And yet, and yet, I think this. Well, this is what I was reading was the the appeal of these because you're living this boring life, mm-hmm. and what it did was so there had previously been stories like this published, and particularly in England, I think what they called the Penny Dreadfuls. Like, okay, yeah, but the Victorian sensation novel took these themes and tropes and moved them into stories about like the middle and upper classes. Mm. So it was like these crazy scandalous things aren't just happening to like the lower classes you don't know about or interact with, this could be your neighbor. Like mm. they could be hiding these like dark, deep, dark secrets. And it was kind of like titillating for people to be like going mm. out for their boring walk with their high Is this collars. when they also got really into like the occult and like the Victorian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so a lot of critics called it vulgar, <laughs> oh. which it kind of was, I guess. Um, but... Yeah, it was kind of, like, enticing to think of the possibility that these things were, like, going on all around you. And I think Mm. that's part of what it was. But um, also, I think some of these tropes were developed because of the type, because they were serialized, right? Mm. So you had to basically have, like, constant cliffhangers because you had to make sure that the reading public was going to purchase the next installment of the story. So it had to have lots of drama, melodrama, excitement, things going on. so Winona, or the Foster Sisters, includes some of the tropes it includes from the Victorian sensation novel. It's got the family secret, the threatened inheritance, the gentleman criminal, the implacable detective, and the scandal of bigamy mm. were the things. And also interesting, especially a little, little link into our second season coming up, um, which is detective fiction. Mm-hmm. It is speculated that, so there is a detective character in Winona called um, Detective Jack Fennell. Oh. And he may be, not confirmed, but he may be the very first detective ever in Canadian literature. Oh. Um, And he's a great character. Oh, great. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that is pretty much what she, um, what a lot of her novels and stories were. But she actually preferred to write poetry, Um, she wrote the stories and novels because they paid better. Right. But she was, I think, primarily in her heart, a poet. Her poems actually, um, were critically acclaimed. She paid for a, um, she self-published a book of her poems. She paid for a thousand copies of it, but it only sold 50. Despite being critically acclaimed. So that was a tough blow for her. Yes, yeah. The poetry, it's, I, I don't really, I would not buy a book of poetry. No, and I don't think you would buy her poetry in particular. <laughs> I mean, it's lots of thous and these and like uh, old yes. fashioned language. It's mostly noted for its very um, beautiful nature imagery. Okay. Um, but yeah, sadly... She, um, shortly after that happened, well, actually, before we get to sadly, this is quite funny. She wrote to a relatively new journal called Arcturus. Um, she says, uh, I have contributed to the Mail and Globe and won some very kind words from eminent critics, but have been quietly sat upon by the high priests of Canadian periodical literature. (laughs) Wow. 
sat upon. Sat upon. So you could tell she was like a pretty opinionated, like taking people to court at age 22 and like she's sassy. But she's I mean, sassy. she's also been through a lot. She probably has like, she's just like, what's there to lose? Well, oh exactly. God. Yeah. Um, so now we'll get to the sadly. Oh. On February 12th, 1887, she died suddenly of heart failure at age 36. Wow. Yeah. And what I really would also like to know about this is what happened to her mother. <laughs> so oh, I can right. find like no information about it because she was living with her mother. She was supporting her mother in these oh. boarding houses. And then, and the, so there's just she, Stephen up in Algoma territory. Oh, I hope Stephen came back. I hope he did too. Um, but yeah, she had died in poverty. And for many years, her, um, her body lay in an unmarked grave. Oh, my God. Yeah, in Peterborough's Little Lake Cemetery. And then in 1899, a fundraising campaign was begun, and on November 2nd, 1900, a six-foot Celtic cross was raised above her grave. Oh. So you can go and see her grave in Peterborough. Oh. Little Lake Cemetery. Um, That's a cute name. I don't particularly go to cemeteries. No. Well, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Halloween is Oh, I've been there all the time. (laughs) It's there's my favorite a, place to picnic. There's also a small um, park in Toronto at Front and John Street, which has been named Isabella Valency Crawford Park. And oh, wow. Front and John Street is where she lived in the oh. boarding house. Yeah. Um, there is also, um, there is a quote um, describing her from the daughter of her landlady. Oh, who was a little girl at the time when she knew her. Okay. She said, um, I was a young girl at the time of her death, but how could I forget one like Miss Crawford? She seemed to me like a being from another planet. There was something about her that the world in general could not be expected to understand. She and her mother lived almost completely by themselves during the years that they lodged with us, except for one or two friends. But they had their own pursuits. Um, I used to watch her make her wonderful Irish potato cakes in our kitchen, well, she described the whole process to me in the language I was trying so hard to learn. So she would speak to this little girl in French because she was trying to learn French. Um, I think she was really gay at heart, but at times seemed sad and depressed. Her passion for music was almost as great as her love for books and poetry. Um, yeah, so that's a little Aww. description of her from her landlady's daughter. Um, so yeah, the only other things I want to touch on here is just um, a couple of more problematic things in her writing. So her representation of indigenous people is like, it's really par for the course at the time. Yeah. Um, And interestingly, uh, Pauline Johnson, who is another Canadian writer who is part Mohawk, Mm -hmm. um, wrote a piece in 1892 in the Toronto Sunday Globe called A Strong Race Opinion on the Indian Girl in Modern Fiction. Oh. And she call, she refers to a lot of the things that, that, so she's always the daughter of a chief. She's always, mm. like, romantic. She always dies tragically. She often commits suicide. She's always, like, passionate but, like, connected to nature. And, like, she's never specifically um, linked to any tribe. She's just an Indian. Like, it's a blanket statement. Right. And, um... And she refers to her as the inevitable Winona, oh. even though I don't, that they're, specu- they're speculating that she never would have read Winona. It's just mm. that so many people use the word Winona for their indigenous heroines really? because oh. it, a lot of these early writers were taking inspiration from Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha. 
and there was a Winona in that. Oh. So um, they couldn't even bother to come up with a new name. <laughs> couldn't even bother. So it's just kind of. I think it's funny that she's like the inevitable Winona. <laughs> oh. But yeah, she is that what this Winona refers to? And yes, the, oh yeah. So Winona um, is the indigenous character oh. who is a foster sister of the European heroine who ends up, of course, like marrying and living happily ever after. Winona, of course dies tragically um although Winona is arguably the most interesting character in this entire book but she's also very very problematic she took a lot of the um indigenous language that she incorporated into the novel from the song of Hiawatha which I have no idea how accurate that is but certainly would probably not be very (laughs) um but this is a funny quote from Pauline Johnson where she says, um, she's talking about how they always, the indigenous characters always die tragically, which is again, part of that whole thing of the time where there was a real, um, effort to make it seem like the indigenous people's time was passed. It wasn't Uh, that the Europeans were actively eradicating them. It was just that, their time is over and yeah the last of the Mohicans and like you know things Uh, like that it's just it's a natural progression which is all of course bullshit um but she says uh Pauline Johnson says the general author gives the reader the impression that he has concocted the plot, created his characters, arranged his action, and at the last moment has been seized with the idea that the regulation Indian maiden will make a very harmonious background whereon to paint his pen picture, that he, never having met this interesting individual, stretches forth his hand to his library shelves, grasps the first Canadian novelist he sees, reads up his subject, and duplicates it in his own work. After a half dozen writers have done this, the reader might... Might as well leave the tale unread as far as the interest touches upon the Indian character, for an unvarying experience tells him that this convenient personage will repeat herself with monotonous accuracy. He knows what she did and how she died in other romances by other romancers, and she will do and die likewise in his. She always does die, and one feels relieved that it is so, for she is too unhealthy and too unnatural to live. Ouch. <laughs> so, she's just like, yeah, these aren't real people. These are, this is just like yeah. a, trope. a caricature. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's definitely that. Um, and then there's also the representation of women. And there was a lot of, um, there was like the women question at the time where people were kind of like, what is the role of women in Mm. this new quote unquote new society? Um, and so it's really interesting actually in, in, in Winona or the foster sisters, there's a huge range of female characters. Um, a lot of them are idiots, (laughs) but not all of them are. Hmm. So, um, she's definitely playing upon some of the, um, you know, the beliefs of the time to create these sort of like decorative brainless women. Um, but then she does have some other women who have agency and have brains. And so it's hard to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that she probably didn't buy into that idea, especially not given the life that she led and the things that she accomplished, but it definitely is reflected to some degree in her work. And so that's my story about Isabella Valency Crawford. Alrighty. Yeah. I just think it's funny that both the names Winona and Naomi have been mentioned. It's like a subtle nod to the Judds. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the, what was her name? The, oh, I can't remember what her name. Oh, it was Naomi because it was Ashley Judd. Yeah. Perhaps 
But that would have to mean the grandmother was, no, I doubt it. She's like, I'm just this big fan of Isabella Valencia. Probably. That's probably, That's probably it. what it was. Yeah. So if anyone is inspired to um, look up Isabella, Isabella Valsey Crawford and her non-masterpieces, oh. um, they're actually quite hard to find. And um, I'm not really inspired. No, it's really, I feel like the the interest is more in the story and the picture it paints of the time. Yeah. Yeah. What it was, what, what life just took. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a lot of tragedy in a life. It is, yeah. 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 And that was par for the course for... Imagine if you were one of the other siblings. What if you were Emma and Naomi? You watched everybody else die and then died yourself. Yeah. But I mean, Isabella Valencia Crawford, she didn't really survive that much longer either. No, 36. That's 36. pretty young. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's an interesting time period for, for literature in general, I... I do feel like I do love a, the idea of serialized stories. Mm. Um, and I also love the idea of illustrated story papers, <laughs> even if they, I guess it's also kind of my love of soap operas. Oh, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's the same kind of thing, right? It like is, it's yeah. melodrama yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah. Serial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sad that reality TV took over soap operas and daytime television. There's still four. Is there? I think there's still four. Well, yeah. General Hospital is still going. Well, good, good on you, General Hospital. So there you have it. If you don't feel like reading Isabella Valency Crawford, you could just go watch General Hospital. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> Lots of amnesia. <laughs> yeah. It returns from the dead. Yeah. Lots yeah. of villainy and scandal. Oh, and affairs. Oh, so many affairs. So many affairs. A lot of partner swapping. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's a lot of partner swapping. In, in Winona, there's a great part where one of the... So there's this one female character named Cecil Bertrand. Oh, Cecil. She, um, she's like one of the worst. She's not very smart, but she's very manipulative. And Mm. so she's always, she's trying to marry like the richest guy there is. So she keeps like jumping from man to man being like, oh no, this, I'm going to go for this guy. I'm going to go for this guy. And eventually ends up like toying with the emotions of this really young guy and telling him she'll marry him. But then he realizes she's not going to. So he like drives her off a sheet of ice in a boat. And they both die, but it's like the most like melodramatic and there's like another boat speeding there to try to like stop him. And like, she like flings herself out. Like it's, it's quite something. Wow. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So that's, it's that kind of book. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note. On that note. Yeah. So ends our mini-sode. Mini-sode. Um, stay tuned for our next mini-sode, which is going to be tied into Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. And we will see you then. Mm-hmm.